Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, author Dan Charnas joins Nate for a discussion of his book, The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop. In this episode, Dan and Nate talk about two of the legendary record companies from hip-hop's early years, Sugar Hill Records and Def Jam. They discuss Sylvia and Joe Robinson's background in the world of old-school R&B and how those practices carried over into the 1980s. They also dive deep into the unlikely partnership between Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin and the glory days of Def Jam. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week we're joined by a special guest, Dan Charnas, author of The Big Payback. The history of the of the business of hip hop. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Cool. And this is a uh, um, the definitive book on the business of hip hop. Uh, I want to thank you for writing it. It's been very informative, and uh, it's a fascinating tale. Uh, you say in the in the note from the author at the beginning that it's the tells the tale of how hip hop made the improbable leap from a marginal urban subculture into supplanting rock and roll as the signature form of expression for a new generation. Um, how did hip-hop change our society? Well, I think it changed it in a lot of ways. Um, you know, uh, almost uh, too, too numerous to, to mention in a soundbite, but I will try. I mean, I, I think actually, you know, I wrote that book in 2010, and uh, we're almost coming up on the 10-year the anniversary of, uh, of the book. And, um, one of the ways in which I argued that hip hop had changed society, uh, you know, was sort of, uh, implicit in what I chose to be the ending scene of the book, which was the election of Barack Obama. And one of the arguments I, you know, made or implied essentially at the end is that hip hop, uh, you know, changed, young Americans in terms of their own uh, political beliefs, their tolerance, um, their willingness to live in a multicultural meritocracy, if you will. Um, and I, I do think that those changes in many ways have happened, um, but it's very, very hard to see them, you know, from the lens of 2019 with Trump now being the president. Um, I think, there has been, on one hand, um, some backlash to this idea of, of uh, you know, multiculturalism and conviviality, whatever you want to call it, um, that, you know, I think makes 
the arguments I make in the book sound a little idealistic. Um, but I also think that these, that these changes take time. Uh, and I also think that there are some people for whom culture is transformative. And I think especially the early fans of hip hop, the early, the early adopters, if you will, you know, the early white kids from suburbia, I think in many ways hip hop was a very transformative culture for them. But I think because the access is so easy now to hip hop um, that it, it may be less transformative uh, for, for mainstream Americans um, that it is not in some way a window to uh, a larger cultural experience for them. Um, and I also think, you know, I've told my students many times at NYU, uh, you know, for some people, culture is transformative and other for others, it's like a bag of Doritos. You know, you eat it and then you throw it away. Um, and, you know, hip hop in, in some ways has become a little bit more like a junk food uh, with a slightly less nutritive value, so to speak. Um, so. There have been some great changes, but I also would temper some of the optimism of the book at this point. Um, you know, we have a longer way to go, and it's not just culture that's going to change us. It has to be culture combined with, um, you know, what we do on the streets and and our activism and how, how much we fight for the kind of society that we want. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And And there's three main stories I want to get. Uh, told in this episode, if if we can, first is is the tale of Sugar Hill Records, uh, Sylvia and and um, Joe Robinson, which was the first rap record label. I wouldn't call them a hip hop label, but I would call them a rap label. And uh, the second one is uh, Russell Simmons and the launch of Rush Productions, and then bringing in Rick Rubin and Def Jam. So I'd like to get through the um, rise and fall of Sugar Hill. And, and and the coming together of, of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, and then they're falling apart. So it's fairly ambitious for sure. the episode, but I think we can do it. And so first off, uh, hip-hop launches in the Bronx without any record industry involvement. It's it's kids having street parties, uh, particularly DJ Cool Herc. The man should get the Nobel Prize, if you ask me, uh, maybe the, the Holy <laughs> Trinity of DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bombada and Grandmaster Flash for inventing breakbeats and hip-hop as we know it codifying it um but it was a very micro business level it starts out as as street parties for kids who couldn't get into discos right that's correct and so um the tale of how sylvia and joe robinson get into making hip-hop records is it's just a fascinating one of chance and 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 things that went wrong and, and things that went right they, uh, the two of them are a direct link to the old R&B business and, and culture. I mean, Sylvia was uh, Mickey Baker's park partner in Mickey and Sylvia, the massive classic hit Love is Strange. And then she went on uh, to have uh, a, a disco era, a sort of pre-disco era hit on, as a solo artist. And they, they had managed to run their, their record label into the ground, all platinum, and they're tied in with this dude, Morris Levy. Can you tell us a little bit about Robinson's relationship with Morris Levy, who I've talked about a fair bit on the show, who was infamously, uh, was he a Gambino or a Genovese? I can't remember which family he came from, but he was the mafia's man in the record business for decades. Uh, yeah, it was said that he was had some ties to the Genovese crime family. Morris Levy uh, owned a concern called Roulette Records. Um, and... 
you know, in, in many ways, he was very much like the other record entrepreneurs of his day. You know, he was a broker of opportunity. And as a broker of opportunity, as a broker of, of access, uh, he charged a high price of engagement uh, for any artist or songwriter or producer who crossed his path. Um, he could provide uh, funds and access to opportunity with one hand and with the other, he could, uh, you know, basically hold a leash, you know, on whoever he was in business with. Um, so the extent of Joe Robinson's involvement with Morris Levy was, uh, I believe, you know, all platinum was, um, was the first record company that was founded by, Sylvia Robinson and Joe Robinson, and uh, they had a number of successful records on there, including Sylvia's own uh, record, Pillow Talk, but also uh, many records by the moments, uh, including, of course, the very famous Love on a Two-Way Street, which was uh, sampled by Jay-Z and Empire State of Mind. Um, but, you know, uh, Joe Robinson had gotten into some problems, some tax problems, and uh, their style of production, Sylvia's style of production was uh, a little old fashioned, uh, by the late 1970s. So they were in financial trouble. And, uh, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is of Sylvia Robinson going to this, this retreat, uh, this religious retreat in New Jersey, um, and sort of asking God for a way out of her problems. And that very evening, um, she goes to one of her niece's parties, which is thrown at Harlem World on 116th and Lenox in, in Manhattan. And it's there that she sees her first rapping DJ, you know, or MC. Um, I believe it might be a Love Bug Starsky as, as memory serves. Yeah, that's And, right. uh, you know, it, it strikes her immediately that this is the answer to her prayers. Uh, and Sylvia, of course, being a person... She's not an, um, a live impresario. She's a record producer. How can I get this onto a record is the question that she asks. And it is a, it is a question that very few people answered or asked before her. Uh, and no one had a legitimate success with before her. So in many ways that made her the mother of, uh, of this entire uh, genre, but they need money to do it. And so Morris Levy, uh, gives Joe and Sylvia the money to start this new label, Sugar Hill. And I believe again, if memory serves that, uh, Morris Levy did have a, a stake in this company. Um, and this kind of connection to the fringes of the record business, uh, would, or the fringes of you know, repute in the record business would haunt them to the very demise of the label. I mean, eventually they sell uh, their concern to MCA, which is also uh, in many ways dancing with the mob. Um, there's a great book on MCA and its relationship to the mob called Stift, uh, which came out, I believe, in the 1990s. So, uh, uh, you know, but the more important thing I think for hip hop is that Joe and Sylvia operated like somebody like Morris Levy operated, which is, 
you sign as art, you sign an artist for as little as you can. You promise them everything, and you deliver almost nothing. You don't deliver uh, royalties. You don't really do accounting. Um, if they ask for money, uh, you act offended, and if you give it to them, you act like you're doing them a favor. That was the way that Joe and Sylvia operated in many ways, because that's the way that the rest of the music business operated around them. And it comes back to haunt them in that they lose uh, so many key artists because of the treatment. And then there's a new generation of, of rappers that come up in the wake of the Sugar Hill explosion that won't sign with them. And, and they come to a bad end. But first, I want to ask you about the odd circumstances of putting together the Sugar Hill Gang, because that was not an organic rap group that existed, wasn't part of the hip-hop community, except tangentially. And Sylvia didn't know, uh, didn't have a direct plug into the scene. She wasn't in the Bronx. Her kids were suburbanites. They didn't they didn't know the scene. And so they end up going right. to a pizza joint and, and getting uh, a guy that um, coincidentally had paid, uh, Hank jo- Jackson had paid for the equipment for the Cold Crush crew. And it seems like in return, he stole their rhymes. Well, I wouldn't say he stole it. He was given them. You have to understand, uh, you know, Hank, which is one of the one of the guys from the Sugar Hill Gang. He was one of Joey Robinson Jr.'s Joey Jr.'s friends. Uh, you know, he also happened to be, I guess, a quasi manager roadie for Kaz and his crew. Grandmaster Kaz, of course, being one of the very first reputable MCs from the Bronx, and Kaz had spent years developing these rhymed routines. Many of them were written down and others, you know, I'm I'm presuming he did off the head. When uh, Sylvia Robinson, or as they call her, Mrs. Rob, when Mrs. Rob offers them a chance to make a record, Hank goes to Kaz and says, you know, Mrs. Rob wants to make a record with me. And Kaz says, you know, you're not a rapper. (laughs) You know, laughing at it. And whoever thought of making a record out of this stuff anyway. So uh, Hank asked to borrow his rhymes and, uh, you know, Kaz just throws the book at him. Like, here, like, what are you going to do with it? It wasn't a theft, um, uh, except in the sense, of course, that when it came time to, to do whatever publishing needed to be done for the song, I don't think that Kaz was counted there. Um, you know, but it wasn't exactly theft in the sense that Kaz was a willing participant in what he thought to be a, a foolhardy exercise. Um, but the joke, you know, ended up being on everybody except Sylvia, right? Yeah. It really did uh, do well. And of course, Sylvia got her come up and, you know, because she not only, uh, you know, I don't, I don't recall at this very moment what the original publishing splits on Rapper's Delight were. I'm sure that she was credited uh, as a writer I don't know whether the three MCs were credited. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, but I know for sure that uh, Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers were not credited, and those are the folks who wrote the music on, and that's on which Sheik. Rapper's Delight is built. And that's Sheik's Good Times. And, and let's hear a, a snippet of that, uh, of Rapper's Delight, which, which features the music of Sheik's Good Times in the background. Uh, Steph, let's play that. Stop the rocket to the bang, man. Boogie, say up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to be. 
And that was Rapper's Delight, the first rap record, which uh, took a live band in the studio, recorded their version of the instrumental backing of Sheik's Good Times, which was the big break record of the summer that all the MCs uh, in the city were rapping over. And uh, let's three basically hip-hop novices rap over um, the track. And nobody expected this thing to be what it became, which was one of the biggest singles of the late 70s and early 80s. And you talk in your book, um, and I, I, I've always found this frustrating as, as long as I've known the story, but I think you sum it up well, that everybody in New York remembered where they were when they first heard that record, especially the people who could have and probably should have made it. And so uh, not only we talked about the Cold Crush crew and Grandmaster Cass, who gave uh, Hank uh, Jackson some of the lyrics that he used in the rap, but Cowboy of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five also inadvertently contributed some lyrics to it. And I don't want to get into hypothetical alternative histories, but um, when you say should have made it, who, in your ideal world, I, and here I go getting into hypothetical histories, in your ideal world, who would have been the crew on the first rap record? Oh, well, I, I don't know if I would actually, you know, phrase my own feelings that way. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, history is history and things played out the way they played out. And I think, uh, you know, the, the use of the word probably should have, uh, I think is more academic than anything else. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that, um, people like Kaz, people like Melly Mel or Cowboy, uh, were more than capable of doing on that record what, you know, the three less experienced uh, MCs did, um, but they weren't ready. Um, and, you know, I think the, the great foresight here belongs to Sylvia. You know, the fact that Sylvia thought enough of this idea to fund it, to get behind it, uh, and propel it into a hit um, is amazing. Um, and I, I actually don't even want to downplay, you know, the abilities of, uh, you know, Wonder Mike and, and, and Hank and, you know, uh, like everybody kind of did their part. Um, it just took a little while for the folks in the Bronx to catch up. And they caught up very, very quickly because no sooner did the Sugar Hill Gang come out that Sylvia began snapping up the real, quote unquote, the real folks. Um, you know, she did sign Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. She did sign the Treacherous Three. Um, you know, she did sign Sequence. So there was some real, you know, real A&R going on after that initial success. And that allowed her to, to essentially corner the market on these talking records. And her innovation of having a, a backing band, I mean, it is it, looked at as retrograde in, in a way like you know the next people we're going to talk about russell simmons and, and rick rubin threw the bands out of the studio and started recording djs onto records but sylvia actually did that first too with grandmaster flash and, the, and grandmaster flash's adventures on the wheels of steel and, and you know grandmaster flash and and the furious five recorded several out al- several singles 
with a backing band, the same formula as a Sugar Hill Gang. But then eventually she does let Flash scratch on record, which is another huge innovation that I think she should get credit for. Uh, yeah, I, 100%. Um, and that's another narrative, right? And that narrative has to do with what exactly is hip-hop, right? Um, because when these first records come out, whether on Sugar Hill or on Enjoy or, you know, on you know Curtis Blow's Christmas rapping record, hip-hop generally gets to be conflated with rapping, right? That That's what hip-hop is. It's talking on records. When, in fact, before Rapper's Delight comes out, hip-hop is a multifaceted performance culture. And the centerpiece isn't the rapping. The centerpiece is the DJing. The centerpiece is the break. The centerpiece is what's going on musically. And that that is really the key innovation of the DJs of the Bronx, you know, uh, especially in, in hip-hop in the 1970s, before it ever makes it onto record. There have been, there have been rhymed uh, records, and, uh, you know, not exclusively rhymed, but there's been rapping on record well before uh, Sugar Hill Gang comes along. Rapping is just, you know, it's, that was African-American slang for talking with style, right? And sometimes talking in rhyme. Um, talking, which is another kind of style, right? And all that stuff comes from the DJs. It came from people like Frankie Crocker. It came from people like Jockey Jack Gibson. Um, DJ Hollywood. So, or Jocko Henderson. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but I'm saying even before DJ Hollywood, uh, DJ yeah, Hollywood when modeled DJs himself. On the radio. And, and, and I want to name drop Pigmeat Markham, whose cadence influenced these guys and who put it on record. Uh, you know, sure. and so this this stuff goes back all the way to somebody like Pygmy, who literally had to put on blackface at the beginning of his career and comes out of the minstrel tradition. And so this stuff has roots way deep in African and American culture. Um, and, and, and this split that you're talking about with the DJs like Frankie Crocker that were on the radio and then the next generation of DJs like DJ Hollywood that were in the discos, but, but doing the raps and then, the wave of, of DJs and MCs in the Bronx, starting with Cool Herc. And Cool Herc's big innovation is the breaks, you know, just playing the drum part of a James Brown record over and over and over again so that the kids could, could really dance and break down to it. But that doesn't get captured on record at all until uh, Sylvia cuts Grandmaster Flash's Adventures on the Wheels of Steel. But they still don't really make what... You know, it still lays the groundwork for the big breakthrough of just having a DJ with a drum machine backing rappers. And that comes from a guy uh, named Russell Simmons. And you, you mentioned Curtis Blow's Christmas Rappin', which is the first um, business angle where Russell Simmons comes into the story. He was he was Curtis Blow's manager when Curtis Blow gets that hit. And so tell us about this kid, Russell Simmons, who comes out of Queens, who's been promoting hip hop shows uh, and dropped out of college to do so. And somehow by the mid eighties is managing virtually every player in the hip hop scene that's exploding. Yeah. Well, I think Russell, uh, you know, starts as a party, party promoter. Uh, you know, Curtis Blow is his friend from city university. Um, and so he starts managing Curtis sort of by default. And when by happenstance, a reporter from billboard, who's catching on to the sort of B-boy, B-beat scene that's going on in New York, 
you know, right around the time of these first records, um, Russell is amped to, you know, be his contact, to be his tour guide through, you know, these clubs in, in the Bronx and Queens and uh, that, that uh, host, you know, these rapping DJs, you know, these MCs. And um, it progresses from that point to a musical relationship when the authors of the, of the billboard piece, uh, or rather the author of the billboard piece and his colleague at billboard, uh, uh, Rocky Ford and JD Moore decided to create their own, you know, talking record essentially. So that ends up being Christmas wrapping, but they initially want, I think Eddie Chiba or DJ Hollywood to do that record. And again, these guys, these rapping DJs of Harlem, they're not interested in making records. Again, it's, it's a very new phenomenon, even with rappers delight. They're like, ah, I can't be bothered. Right. I can make more money in an evening than I'll make with you making a record. Um, so in, in ways, in many ways, it was a restricted kind of vision. Uh, and so Russell insinuates himself into that situation. He says, well, I've got this great MC Curtis blow. And that, launches Curtis Blow's career as an artist and it launches Russell Simmons' career as a manager. Um, he leaves party promotion essentially behind. Uh, and he decides that he wants to start uh, managing more acts and to start producing records. And he does so with the help of a guy by the name of Larry Smith, um, who will work with Russell through the debut of Russell's brother's act, run DMC, which as you allude to really begins to change the game musically and tip it back musically towards the DJ and away from the MC or rather to create a little bit more equity between the DJ and the MC and to bring back that sort of central innovation of hip hop. In other words, the first hip hop records kind of sounded like disco records with talking on top of them and hip hop, under Russell Simmons and Larry Smith begins to sound more like itself, right? It begins yeah. to develop its own aesthetic. And, and this, this aesthetic that they, that they bring into, into, into play is much harder and not really dance floor aesthetic. It's, it's a carry the boombox and play it loud, put it in the car and play it loud, very macho sound with the drum machines and the scratching and the inimitable yelling of Russell's little brother, Run, and uh, his partner, Daryl Mack, DMC. And they, the, I, I hadn't realized exactly how explosive Run DMC had been and how much from the very beginning their commercial prospects immediately exceeded anything else going on at the time. I knew Sucker MCs right. was a big hit, but um, I, I, I didn't, I just, the, inexorable momentum of run dmc's career once they hit the streets uh, once their music hits the streets is pretty incredible and it, it's you know russell's famous for def jam records but def jam was not the record label that put out run dmc sugar hill was out because right. he knew they had a reputation for not paying but there's these two partners um who have a record label Corey robbins robbins and steve plotnicki who have a record label called profile and mm -hmm. uh these are two uh, white guys it's 
to me, one of the fascinating things about this story, as compared with the stuff that I've looked at in the show in the past, which is more the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s R&B, is the pattern of it's a gradual transformation from white businessmen with black musicians. And now you have Russell Simmons, who's inserting himself in this process. And so the African-American business people take a bigger and bigger role. But this relationship with profile um, ends up ultimately that, that it helps run DMC explode, but it's also tied in to their downfall from the very beginning. The relationship is tainted by a pretty unfair contract. Um, how do you look at Profile's role in this? I mean, are they just the next generation of exploiters, which is a bit of an overgeneralization, or did they contribute as well? Um, well, I have to uh, have to sort of uh, reel it back a little bit because I don't believe that Profile uh, Profile's contract was any more usurious than any other independent record contract of its day. In fact, the reason that Russell wanted to deal with Profile is that they had a reputation for paying their artists, right? So in other words, if they owed money, they paid it, right? According to the contract, according to the book. Um, whereas if Sugar Hill owed money, they might not pay it, right? So I think Profile in many ways was a step ahead for the business. Um, and if you look ahead of profile, what comes after profile? Well, Russell's own label, Def Jam. Def Jam gave horrible contracts, horrible deals. You know, um, it was not the contractually Def Jam wasn't any better really, uh, than, or than, than on average, than, uh, profile had been. The difference was the, the aesthetic consciousness of the, of the owners, right? That, uh, Rick and Russell made good records and they knew what good records were. Um, and they were willing to spend money to make good records and they were willing to spend money to, to, to make hits, but that didn't mean that they were willing to give the artists more of a cut. Do, do you know what I mean? So, Absolutely. And, um, and I th- but you are right in the sense that there, the seeds of the downfall of run DMC are sowed into the original profile deal because what, what ends up interrupting their career is run DMC trying to get out of that deal. Now that they are a bigger artist than any of them ever imagined, including profile records, how does profile respond to it? Do they respond like uh, forward thinking businessmen or do they respond like, uh, well, nope, sorry, this is the contract. You know, this is what you promised us. You got to stick with it. Uh, I think, it was a bit of uh, um, combativeness and nearsightedness uh, on the part of uh, Profile's owners. And, but also, you know, you have to hand it to them as well because most, Run DMC were big enough to get attention from a major label, right? Uh, For a major label to come scoop them up off of Profile and give them more money and more opportunity and all that. And I'm sure Run DMC would have liked that. I'm sure Run DMC would have liked to have been on, on Def Jam, you know, which had done a deal with a larger major label, Columbia. Um, but Steve Plotnick and Corey Robbins of Profile were forward thinking enough that they said, we're not going to sell our best assets 
that's how indies go out of business. And that's why majors stay major and indies stay indie. Maybe we want to grow into a major label. If that's the case, we need to keep our most valuable asset. The problem is in keeping it, they created this kind of pyrrhic victory where, where the whole house essentially burned down. You know, they were willing to torch the whole house just to keep run DMC. And it just, it wasn't the way to do it. Um, so it's a more complex, more complex history than, oh, Profile just gave him a bad contract. You know, Def Jam was giving bad contracts too. What the, the problem was that reasonable adults couldn't work it out. And that, that ended up being very, very sad for, for Run DMC. Absolutely. And let's hear uh, that first track. It's like that. Produced by Larry Smith and Russell Simmons by Run DMC. That's the legendary. It's like that. The first recording by Run DMC, and we talked about um, how Profile Records gave the world Run DMC, and then the the litigation that Profile got into with Run DMC, their refusal to let Run DMC out of the contract, brings down Run DMC. But it's not just the Profile Records relationship; it's also the ambitions of Russell Simmons and his new partner, a white kid, Rick Rubin, Jewish kid uh, from the suburbs, who starts Def Jam in his dorm room and and puts out a record and when Russell Simmons hears it he loves it and when he meets the kid he cannot believe it's a white kid right what 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 and then you know and you talk about the way when you talk about the cultural transformation that music has for some people your portrait of Rick Rubin is of somebody who didn't really make that transformation. I mean, he's somebody who's heavily involved, who's essential to the growth of hip hop throughout the eighties and, and musically gifted helps run DMC, make their greatest record raising hell produces the beastie boys, classic licensed ill produces all of LL cool J's classic first album radio makes hip hop an album art form. And yet doesn't seem to have been impacted on a personal level. I mean, the the anecdote you tell about the polar bear uh, at the end of the third album of your book, and you divide it up into albums. I mean, do you think Rick Rubin ever absorbed, like, does his consciousness? How did how did Rick Rubin's consciousness not get elevated through this process? Well, I don't. I'm not sure that I would agree that his consciousness didn't get elevated. I think he just was never a political person. And I think that there were things that he very much understood about hip hop culture. Um, whether or not those extent, those understanding understandings extend to black culture, uh, is debatable, but he understood things so deeply about what hip hop was. He had this innate sense um, of its uniqueness. He had this innate sense of, uh, its dignity. Really? I mean, nobody treated hip hop with more dignity, even in seeing the humor in hip hop, um, and bringing out some of the craziness of it. You know, when he was working with the Beastie Boys, like he, you know, he helped to give, 
uh, or rather not to give, but to, to, to shield and uplift the dignity of hip hop as a, as an art form. I think what he misunderstood or rather just is some things get by you, you know, as a human being. And for Rick, he just wasn't political. He didn't care about PE's political message. Um, he cared about their beats and rhymes. He cared that Chuck was a great MC. Um, you know, Rick was never interested in history in general and black history in particular. And, you know, that's not saying he's a, he's a, a bad guy. It's just like it, 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 he has a sort of a historical approach to, um, to that part of hip hop. Um, and I guess the irony I was trying to point out with the polar bear story in the book is that for Rick, uh, he enjoyed a tremendous amount of respect and uh, and love from his uh, colleagues, uh, black colleagues and black artists. But I think that there was also a part of Rick that couldn't access their experiences. And so when it came to something like Public Enemy, you know, he he didn't really understand the whole, uh, you know, political part. And, and even maybe if he understood it, intellectually, he just didn't care. You know, it wasn't something that he cared about. He didn't view hip hop as, you know, oh, this is really essential for black youth. Like he viewed it as this is just essential in and of itself. And, uh, you know, I don't think he ever thought twice about him really being a part of it. So in that sense, Rick becomes probably the, the, in some ways, a, a, a progenitor of hip hop, but in also ways one of the most important visitors to hip hop, because I don't think that he was with hip hop for the rest of its growth, right? Into this sort of Afrocentric uh, political art form. Whenever I worked with Rick, his relationship with hip hop was, was almost exclusively aesthetic. And there's, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's Rick. And that yeah. may also be why he has the the brilliance that he has. Because, you know, he's not he's not intellectualized over intellectualizing it, uh, you know. Um, and that was left for, you know, people like I don't know, me <laughs> to to think about. Um yeah. but Rick, Rick will always be one thing that I am not, and that is a great record producer. Yeah, and he produced many records. And there's a paragraph um, in your book where you, you summarize the blend going on at Def Jam that I just think is is pretty incredible. I want to read it. It says, this was typical Jeff, Def Jam, where the usual American tropes about race were turned upside down. The Beastie Boys were a white group with a black DJ managed by a black man and his white Israeli-American lieutenant. Their black-sounding hip-hop records were produced by a white man and promoted to white radio programmers by a black man. They owed their careers to the endorsement of a black rap supergroup, and the white MCs now crusaded for a new pro-black political rap crew whose black friend had just dissed the white rappers in print. <laughs> um, the pro-black group Public Enemy had been pursued doggedly by a white Jewish record entrepreneur over mild objections and indifference from his black partner. And Public Enemy was had modeled by their black producer in part after a white punk band. And that, I think, is really important to get out there 
right now in 2019 when people are so conscious of cultural appropriation and trying to draw lines between black music and white music that this is American music. And, uh, and that blend is what made Def Jam possible. There's no way to extricate the, uh, African American and the white performers and, and, and the business people, they're all entangled and, and working together for this window, at least in time until Rick Rubin splits. And I mean, do you think something like Def Jam could happen again? Yes, I do. Um, and, you know, I got to say, uh, the fact that you chose that one paragraph, because that is, if, if I could have people read one paragraph from the book, that would be the very paragraph. So I think it's just amazing that you, you picked up on that. Um, and, you know, that, to sort of go back on what you had just said, I, I, you know, appropriation, cultural appropriation is real. Uh, and it is a problem, but I don't think a lot of people, especially in our, in generation woke really understand what appropriation is. Um, appropriation is not borrowing, right? Appropriation is not when any white artist does some sort of, uh, uh, black art form, because frankly, you know, as, as I think you've intimated, there is no art form in America that isn't in some way derived from African genius in some way. Right. So that disentanglement is not going to happen. What appropriation is, is an inequity when it comes to money and access, right? It's all about equity and access. And, uh, what Def Jam was that was different was it really was in many ways, the first biracial concern. It, in more ways than Stacks was before that, right? Um, and that a multicultural, uh, biracial enterprise yields a different kind of art, and it also yields a different kind of irony, right? Um, and there are many ways that, you know, Stacks and Motown in the 60s were ironic racially, in that, you know, you have this uh, fully black owned uh, machine. Uh, well-oiled machine, uh, Motown. So, so important as a black business that it was the number one, uh, the biggest black business, uh, owned business well into the 1980s, um, before, you know, it sold to, to, uh, uh, MCA or the Boston group or whatever that, that group was. But, um, you know, Motown was this huge black owned company and yet it produced a kind of music that was in many ways more more palatable and more made for mainstream audiences. So that those ironies existed, but in Def Jam, they were really compounded in many ways. And, uh, you know, there was a certain spirit of Def Jam that actually, listen, it's, it's the interraciality of Def Jam that allowed for public enemy to even be signed. Right. This is the strength of what happens when people come together under the premise of, um, you know, merit and multiculturalism. I think that good things actually happen when black folks and white folks come together and work together and white folks aren't trying to retain control. Right. Yeah. That I think it's great. And in some ways, you know, forgive me, they can be effective in different ways than parochially black organizations, right? 
and yeah. certainly more effective than white only organizations. There is something about the diversity that's actually, you know, it's not a code word for, uh, you know, more black faces. It's actually a code word for us interacting and being able to, to, to share power and share respect. And in many ways, Def Jam was a model for that. And in some ways, Def Jam wasn't a model for that. So it was a new thing, I guess is what I'm saying. The most important thing is that Def Jam was something new in America. And um, that newness allowed for the creation of an entire genre off of which people are still eating and the creation of great art and especially black nationalist art, conscious art like public enemy. Yeah. And that's the perfect segue to uh, the song that you peg as, as public enemy's real breakthrough rebel without a pause. The first time uh, that the uh, Shockley's used the bomb squad used samplers uh, to make a public enemy record. Let's hear it. I don't know what this world is coming to. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel. Without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time again. D, the enemy, telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show. Bum rush the sound. I made a year ago. I guess you know. You guess I'm just a radical. And that was Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. Uh, a mid-period. I mean, Public Enemy had already done a whole album, uh, but you 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 peg it as they had struggled. You know, these are DJs from Long Island, kind of suburban kids. They're very intellectually attuned to black nationalism, but their early records weren't clicking on the streets. They were getting more traction with white DJs and white fans uh, until they heard Eric B. and Rakim, and and changed their game up with that legendary song rebel without a pause and ironically this is around the time rick rubin starts to lose interest and in the band that he not only did he have to overcome his partner russell simmons indifference but he had to overcome chuck d's indifference i mean rick rubin literally had to stalk chuck d for months to get him to to sign with def jam and put public enemy together because they were a crew of djs on the radio and uh you know they remind me of anything of the art band Negative Land, you know, the San Francisco white DJs that were making crazy sample records. Um, they never thought of themselves as, you know, a crew or street performers. They weren't doing doing block parties and things like this. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, Rick Rubin's many contributions being the catalyst that put public together, public enemy together is an enormous one. And right. Now I've talked myself into a circle. I don't really have a question for you here, but but this this. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that you bring out that I hadn't been aware of was that um, Rick Rubin and and Larry Smith, when they first recorded Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, they were literally recording DJs playing records, and it wasn't until this new wave of of I don't a more street level cred uh new yorkers you know the bronx kind of strikes back with boogie down productions and eric b and rakim mm-hmm. and they start using these samplers and then public enemy gets a hand on it and they the game just snowballs and and sets yep. up the next wave of um of hip-hop where hip-hop goes in the late 80s uh, and early 90s but 
before that, and I've talked myself totally in a circle. I want to I want to talk a little bit more about not only was Run DMC brought down by this long lawsuit that Russ Simmons and Rush Productions started against Profile, and their momentum was slowed because they did a movie that Rick Rubin directed terribly. Right. And then the Beastie Boys sort of play out a similar drama where Rick Rubin is treating them as they see it unfairly and they're not interested in the productions. What is it about the Def Jam process that the Beastie Boys had to rip themselves away from it? Well, it was the same process that was going on with Run DMC and Profile. It was a usurious contract. Uh, Rick uh, exerted uh, way too much creative uh, I don't want to say control, but, you know, he really did. Um, Rick can slow things up if he wants to, um, to get them right, to get them perfect. And uh, I know that Rick is probably doing well by his own aesthetic, uh, you know, guiding stars. But that can be very frustrating for artists who are working with him. And with the Beastie Boys, <clears throat> there were certain opportunities that they wanted to take advantage of. Like on the management side, Lior Cohen was helping Russell manage them and Lior would get them, you know, set up for a movie deal and Rick would quash it, you know, because he didn't think it was cool. And so I think uh, Adam and, and Mike and, uh, you know, uh, Yawk, they were... At at certain point, uh, really frustrated, you know, trying to get Rick to finish their album, trying to get uh, some kind of deal going through. Um, and finally, I think the final straw came when they couldn't get any money released to them because of a sample lawsuit. It was Rick's fault that the sample was on there, right? Um, and it was Columbia's fault for not being smart and, you know, letting some money through while the lawsuit was pending so that Def Jam could pay the Beastie Boys, you know, and keep them happy. But it didn't happen that way. Columbia was stupid. Def Jam was stupid. And the Beastie Boys were smart. And they got the hell out of there. And they knew enough to know that if we stop working with Rick, we're still going to have a career. Um, and they did, you know. They're, they were good, independently of, of Rick Rubin. Now, I do think that they created some magic together when they were to, when they were together. But um, you know, Def Jam was no picnic for its artists. And eventually, as Def Jam became more and more integrated into the major label systems, it became more and more economically, you know, and, and financially like any other major label. They did have to pay money to compete. Um, they did have to offer artists equity and joint ventures and things like that. Um, and that change, you know, came as a result of just the business practices of, you know, um, of being more mature, you know, as a business. And, and, uh, I want to, I want to end with something you've alluded to, which was these, uh, legal entanglements over samples. Ruben basically just bowled ahead and and you know, ripped off songs and and grabbed samples from artists, uh, an enormous variety of artists. But some of the artists squawked. ACDC, which uh, you know had involuntarily provided the backing for the first Beastie Boys uh, production with Rick Rubin, 
you know, would never let that be legally released. And and I want to play, I want to end the show with the, what I think is one of the lost masterpieces of the 80s, which is the Beastie Boys version of the Beatles' I'm Down, that oh, yeah. Michael Jackson, who had acquired the publishing rights uh, to this song, forbade. And what's your take? I mean, I view this sort of golden era before artists were checking for samples when when people were just grabbing stuff willy-nilly as sort of a golden age and some of my favorite records de la soul's first album the beastie boys second album uh public enemy second album and third album are just so deep in samples and yet you know that that form of making music was stopped cold by a series of lawsuits in the 90s and and let's hear uh the Beastie Boys, I'm down, and then and then hear what you think about what we've lost and what we've gained with that. Now with the Beastie Boys version of the Beatles, I'm Down, which uh, was never commercially released. It was stopped by Michael Jackson, of all people, who had acquired the the rights to Lennon McCartney's Northern Songs uh, publishing. First off, like, do you view this as just an enormous loss to culture, or, or how do you feel like we've navigated the whole issue of sampling rights, and have, has the artist suffered because some artists are keeping control of their work and keeping paid or has it been a net win for society that we're now in a system where you have to license one sample and, and it's very expensive and, and much more difficult process. I mean, uh, it was a whole other show. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I the, the short answer is I think it has been absolutely mismanaged and horrible and misinterpreted. Uh, I, think that copyright um, has been really distorted by uh, corporate entities that, number one, have extended and extended and extended and extended the lives of copyrights that should not be extended. Um, copyright was meant to spur innovation, not to create monopolies of capital. So that's the first thing. The second thing is... Uh, Sampling and hip hop are very, shall we say, you know, for lack of a better term, African-esque, Afrocentric modes of uh, creativity and ways of looking at, quote unquote, ownership of things, right? There is no ownership of a, a chord progression, right? Every blues song and every rhythm and blues song has the same damn chord progression. Who wrote that? Who owns that? Well, there's this kind of collective ownership in music that, that borrow heavily from West African cultures and American music is a part of that. Uh, but it is easier for the Western legal uh, template or, or frame of mind or Weltanschauung worldview, right? It's easier for the Western worldview, legal worldview to metabolize, um, you know, a song as a series of notes over 
a harmony and that if the notes are unique, at least, then it's a new song. And you have pl- <laughs> so many songs that have different copyrights that have almost the same melody and the same chords, right? So if you really look at it musicologically, it, the, the logic breaks down. But that, uh, American, you know, copyright and American uh, legality and law has no problem making those distinctions uh, and according authorship to uh, people who write songs with notes and, and chords that are quite similar. Um, where it starts to break down is in the use of chunks of sound as the building blocks of music composition. And that's what hip hop is. It's using chunks of sound. Um, and nobody can tell me that the Beastie Boys version of I'm Down is in any way competitive or saps a market from the Beatles I'm Down. But because the law is the way it is, they cannot call it I'm Down and they cannot use the mel- any part of the melody of I'm Down without the Beatles' permission or whoever owns the Beatles publishing at that time. Um, and there is no right to use chunks of sound in our law either, right? That's a whole separate legal issue uh, of, of sound copyright. Um, so we do not have a legal framework for this incredible art form, which has yielded amazing things. I mean, you know, that De La Soul album where they're sampling the Turtles or, you know, or Beastie Boys when they're sampling Jimmy Castor. You know, these are not, these are new works that are being created out of old works. They're not a theft of an old work. Uh, And, but we just don't have a law, a, a legal framework to even allow that to happen within the law. And I think it's very sad. Um, I think we lost a lot. Cool. And, and thanks so much for being on the show, Dan. And I hope I can get you back on again, because there's so much more of the story uh, to tell your book brilliantly sums up, you know, the first 30, 40 years of hip hop business history. And the book again is the big payback, uh, the history of the business of hip hop by Dan Charnas of 2210 classic uh, for music historians. So thanks for being on the show, Dan. Thank you. Share and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when author Peter Doggett returns to talk about Bing Crosby and the Age of the Crooners. The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop by Dan Charnas is available from Berkeley and can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.